Ladies and gentlemen, a great pleasure to have you on my show. In this case, a short introduction from my side, Gregorio Leoni, the host, the CX goalkeeper. In this episode and in the next one, I will discuss with Maurice Fitzgerald about NPS. This is not the usual discussion eye level. This is really in-depth discussion about strength, weakness and its future. And therefore, I decided to split it in two different episodes. I hope that you will enjoy them. Ladies and gentlemen, today is a really big, big pleasure. I have Maurice Fitzgerald with me. Hi, Maurice. How are you? Hey, Gregorio. Fantastic. Great to be with you, even with your football background after Italy beating Switzerland. Hey. But you're half Swiss, so you must feel good and bad. Exactly. But in this moment, I am feeling well because I can speak with you, really a great, great expert on customer experience. And I want to say I'm really sorry that it's not a golf pitch for you. I think it would fit a bit better <laughs> to your hobby. It's a question of age, yes. <laughs> uh, Maurice, as usual, I start all my podcasts, all my webcasts uh, with the same question. And the question is, could you please introduce yourself? Um, sure. I've, I suppose everyone thinks their lives is a bit complicated in, in different ways. You know, as you know, when you had Michael Brandt uh, recently, his uh, time in Japan was very formative for him and so on. Well, I was born in Ireland. My parents were both academics. They, When I was nine years old, they decided to develop their career in the United States. We moved to Seattle. Um, I finished high school and went to university as an industrial engineer in Ireland. But I still had a green card. And uh, at the time, I had a mentor after doing an internship with ICI. And he said, you, you should join a fast growth industry because that's where the greatest promotion opportunities always are. And we looked at a list and for him, the fastest growing one was actually, guess what? Wrangler jeans in the clothing industry you know, before clothing and clothing was massively offshored. And I worked with them at the start in Georgia, North Carolina, um, Ireland for 18 months, France for four years, briefly in Italy and Spain, 18 months in Scotland. Uh, before re seeing an ad in the Sunday Times that described exactly the warehouse design and automation job that I was doing with Wrangler, but for Digital Equipment Corporation for double the pay in Holland, because clothing industry is extremely cost-centric, and at the time, the high tech wasn't. And I went through and stayed with uh, digital through merging with Compaq, through merging with HP. Um, had very, uh, had a couple of memorable customer experience uh, experiences. Finished uh, my career with HP. I'd been on the European leadership team for quite a while. I uh, joined the corporate software leadership team, uh, first as chief of staff, then uh, head of customer experience, which reported directly to the division leader who reported to the CEO, Meg Whitman, at the time. And that stuff was all fun. But I, I want to pick out what was my big breakthrough customer experience event. And that was while I was living in Paris uh, and we... The division of Wrangler I was in was responsible for um, 
the Benelux, France, and Italy. And we, my boss was a person who could legitimately claim to be a co-inventor of stonewashing as a way of washing jeans. And he was very interested in what it was that the resellers, the, you know, the stores, boutiques at the time, we were avoiding supermarkets and big chains, what they thought of all of this and what they wanted us to improve. And I said, fine, I'll go out with a salesperson and I'll ask the, the most important ones, just give me a list. And I, because I was an engineer, I wasn't structurally, it was a matrix, I was reporting to a corporate engineering manager, and he was extremely negative about this. His view was, we already know what the boutiques and the customers want. They want the rivets to stay attached. They want the stitching to be strong. They want you know, the jeans to last a long time. They want different things for the shirts. They want different things for the jackets and so on. And, but it was all very technical, very strength and so on. And he said, just don't do this. And in a, well, a tendency I have that continued throughout my career, I decided to do it anyway and went in with open questions to these people and just said, you know, what could we do better? And the list that they had had nothing in common with what my corporate um, boss had. And it was also really different from what the division manager to whom I reported locally was, was saying. Uh, what they were saying was things like, well, if you're going to tell us that you're going to deliver on Thursday morning, it has to be Thursday morning because I've arranged for my family or my friends to come over and unload the truck and put all the stuff on the shelves. I said, but don't you care if the deliveries aren't correct? And he said, no, what really matters to me is to have stuff on the shelves for the weekend. If it's wrong and I've not and I've sold it, fine. If it's wrong and I've not been able to sell it, I'll send it back to you on Monday. You know, um, and it was a list of things like this, none of which were expected. And what that taught me with the well, it just taught me that you, if you haven't asked customers what it is they want and what what they want you to improve you don't know and you're going to get surprises and i found that to be absolutely through true throughout my career in the different companies you can't tell without asking now you know, technology changes that scenario <laughs> you know, over time and, and there are some at least partial answers that you can get without asking customers but I imagine we're, uh, we'll talk about that. I was given the, uh, the opportunity to uh, retire back in 2016 and I did. I uh, retired early and well uh, I decided that I would uh, write a few books and that that would empty my brain. And I wrote books on customer experience strategy, on net promoter system, on saving costs without screwing up the customers. And unfortunately or unfortunately, that didn't let me uh, empty my mind and just go spend my life no longer thinking about that stuff because uh, to my surprise you know the book sold well continued to sell well and i get asked to 
do all sorts of things like speak to people on a podcast and uh, <laughs> and I enjoy that and I still do what I would call professional stuff that I think is fun and as distinct from that I think is necessarily high impact or whatever it's just things that I like doing like speaking to you Gregorian. Thank you very much, Maurice. This is a great pleasure to have you on, on this podcast. And uh, allow me to say that you forgot your newsletter because this is really ah, yes. an outstanding <laughs> newsletter. I am really looking to, to get it and to read it because it's really full of insights. And sorry, it's not really something fluffy, but it's real stuff that yeah. can help. Uh, correct. correct. Like, um, I enjoyed, that's one of the things I enjoyed doing. I was doing it for my own website for, for years. And then I, I, I sort of put it, I froze it for a while. And now LinkedIn has, a, let's say, they invite you to do newsletters. You can't just spontaneously decide it. And well, in business strategy, like in, well, in business strategy in general, you win by either being better than your competitors or being different. And my observation of every other newsletter that I receive on LinkedIn is they're all blog posts. Yes. And I said, okay, well, I can't claim that I can write better than these people, but I'm going to be different. I'm not going to do a blog post. I'm going to do a sheer series of short items of my own and highlighting other people's things. And that's, uh, yeah, I've been really surprised how quickly that's growing. I've only done, I do it every second Monday. I've done three so far and uh, I'll certainly you know, try it for six months and see, do I continue to enjoy writing it and sharing the um, the stuff that I that I see, that I find interesting, that other people write. And also real-time feedback. Please, please continue after the six months because it's really full of, um, in, in my words, gold nuggets that uh, six professionals can use, leverage, and also share with others. Right. Thank you, Maurice. I realize, sorry, I've got to quit my email program that keeps pinging, so I've just quit it. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, if I have you, let's say, on the line or on the show, then I need to ask a bit out-of-the-box questions and not the standard questions about customer experience. And therefore, please allow me to, to ask the first first question. Is NPAS really dead? <laughs> well, you know, one of the entertaining things you can do is do a, an internet, a Google search on that term. And you'll certainly find plenty of people who think that it is or that it should be. And yet, uh, I remember I was interviewed, I don't know, 18 months ago about by a, a woman from the Wall Street Journal who was writing on the topic. And, but her observation was the opposite, which was that more and more companies is we're including NPS numbers in their annual reports and, and that type of thing. Um, I, I think, and there's also a recent, is it a Gartner or a Forrester article saying, uh, or the, predicting a big decline in the use of NPS. Now, I, I don't think, it certainly isn't happening. I don't believe it will happen. And it's for just one reason. And it is that NPS is far easier to communicate than any of the other metrics. 
that has advantages and disadvantages. But if you walk into a room and you say, okay, I'm measuring you know, CSAT, the, our OSAT, the overall satisfaction metric, and 73% you know, of our customers are satisfied. Well, one of the issues is that in CSAT, there isn't any standard definition for what proportion of the customers are satisfied. And if you're measuring on the most common one to five scale, uh, some people consider everybody who isn't a one uh, the lowest score to be satisfied, and others consider only the top two box to be to be satisfied. So you have to explain it every time, and you have to put up potentially with somebody who's being painful in the room, um, disagreeing with your explanation of it, and uh, that's terribly time wasting. With NPS, you don't have to do that. Just about everybody you'll encounter in business has a basic conception of you know, detractors, passives, and promoters. They may think the metric isn't very valid. They may have all sorts of opinions, but you don't have to explain what it is. Um, yeah, I guess that's really the... Uh, the main point uh, about that. And it's really the only reason that I think it won't go away. Yeah, I mean, pick the, uh, the opposite extreme. Um, and people at uh, Ipsos uh, came up with the wallet allocation rule. You'll see people come up with, uh, or there's the Temkin Experience Index. There's even the American Customer Satisfaction Index people believe they know what these things are, but once it's an aggregate thing, which you're calculating as a result of a weighted or an unweighted average of multiple questions, then every time you speak to a new audience, you have to explain what the metric is again and deal with somebody who's got their PhD in statistics disagreeing with your methodology and putting everybody else in the room to sleep, right? Yes. And it, it, so, you know, yes, compound metrics can be better predictor of better predictors of customer retention, churn, and so and so on, and even revenue trends, but they're really difficult to communicate. So. NPS will stay and keep, stay with us because of its simplicity. And I think that's uh, that's that's what I am also sharing um, as an idea. It's extremely easy to communicate, and also in the boardrooms, where not always the customer as the first place, they start understanding what the NPS is. They start understanding that uh, NPS is important, that customer centricity is is important, and therefore, it, I think it, it's something good to start. But it's only one metric, and also to challenge a bit what you were saying. Uh, I think there are quite a lot of different methodologies, how to measure that, how to put that. Is there yeah. one standard or one, one standard methodology to, for that? Uh, I have to give a kind of nuanced answer on this because, yes, there is. There is a reference methodology and, what can I say, almost nobody uses it. Uh, NPS is a registered uh, service mark. mark, I think it is, of uh, Fred Reichelt, Bain and Satmetrics. 
So kind of by definition, they're the custodians of what it means. And, and they do each, and I could even distinguish a little bit between what Fred says and Bain says, though they're almost identical. And But they, they do have some differences between what they say, which are relatively minor. Now, the current thing that is a standard for uh, promoted by Bain for uh, NPS. Now, NPS itself, nobody disagrees on what the standard is for the measurement. Ideally, on a 0 to 10 scale, 0 to 6 are detractors, 7 8s are passives, 9s and 10s are promoters. And uh, Fred and Rob and the Satmetrics people have been really explicit that it doesn't matter much if you decide that you don't want to do it on 0 to 10, that you want to do it on a 1 to 5 scale. But if you do that, don't change. Just uh, be consistent. And the, the, at HP, we moved at one point from a, zero, a 1 to 5 scale to a 0 to 10 on the recommendation question, which we've been asking uh, answering using for years and years, even before we introduced NPS as the standard across uh, the company as the single metric. And uh, 0 to 10 does give you slightly higher results in some cultures. You know, notably, for example, in, in Japan, people can be very reluctant to give you the very top score, and they, they're more likely to give you a 9, if you like, and not want to give you a 10. Whereas on a 1 to 5 scale, even if they love you, they may say, but there's still a few things they should improve, so we're going to give a, a 4, uh, and so on. Um, so the scale, the basic score calculation is fine, but of course you learn nothing from, you don't learn anything about what to do from the score. You learn, to, you learn that from additional questions. The current standard for the additional questions is, now, first question, why? Not why did you give us the score? Not um, why did you do it because, uh, you know, based on your latest interactions with us? Just the word why. And the way Rob Markey explains that is he says, that's the one that translates best. And then when you do it here in a multinational, if you're going to do it in 70 languages, just doing that is the simplest approach. And um, it's not going to get screwed up as you go multinational. But over the years, they discovered, which makes some sense, that if you ask why to detractors, they'll tell you what they want to they want you to improve. Passives will tell you why they don't care too much about you. Uh, promoters will tell you, oh, yeah, because, you know, this, your salesperson is wonderful and so on. But most of them won't tell you what you should improve. And actually what you want from the promoters and from everybody is to find out what is it that we can do better. So there is a third question on the standard, which is what can we do better or what should we do better? And very, very, very few companies use that standard. Um, and oddly, and I've had multiple cases of this, someone will say, oh, but adding three questions is too complicated. 
and then you look at what they've actually done, and they've got 50 questions, you know. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, originally, the technology didn't exist to do you know, excellent natural language processing on the answers, and people are concerned that just reading text answers would produce excessive bias, and yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's the case. The... I'd say the main difference with set metrics and now nice set metrics is the company name and in the training is uh, we place quite a, an emphasis on driver questions in in that training and I didn't used to support that as a perspective I do now for reasons that will become clear um, and these are just trying to determine which it, things it is at, at a statistical level com, uh, contribute the most to uh, the to people becoming detractors promoters or uh, or passives and so it's asking a whole series of additional questions the reason that i didn't used to like it is that that deteriorated into a methodology to produce internal scorecards that weren't used to drive anything. So like if you had 20 functions in a company, you'd say, well, let's put in two questions for each function. <laughs> and yes. even ones that didn't necessarily have any contact with the people who were answering the surveys. And it gave the wrong impression that everything was equally important. So that's um, the main perspective is that the driver questions aren't generally useful, which is correct. I believe they're periodically useful. And it's because the things that are important can change over time. And expectation management, because if you continuously ask your customer what we can improve and you cannot cope with the change, then it's, it's also uh, true. Different. Yeah, and the, the risk with driver questions is that you'll ask the questions you want to ask as distinct from giving the customer the opportunity to say what uh, what they want to say. Exactly. I think the, the bias on surveys could be the one of the next podcast. But now let, let's stay on, on, on the N NPS. And what you're mentioning, I think it's, it's really key. Um, as a matter of fact, that let's say in general, all the companies are sending out surveys and we are not answering all the surveys because we are a bit skeptical about what will happen with the service and so on. Let's say I say number, perhaps it's the wrong one, but 15-20% uh, of the customer answer to these questions if there are two, three or tens, but it means then uh, 80 to 90% of the customer are not answering. What happens with this customer or what can yeah, be done? And certainly, if we're going to talk about the top three defects, that would be right in, that would certainly be in the top three, that it encourages, and I personally have encouraged this, it encourages the taking of action exclusively with people who have responded. Right? So... Uh, but then what about all of the rest? And we know and there's lots of research that shows that survey response rates have been declining over the years, uh, particularly in consumer businesses. In, in B2B, 
particularly with large customers, it's relatively easy to get high response rates. Um, then you just have the question of, are you actually talking to the correct person and people within a large company? So, and an example occurs to me, which is a, a German multinational e-commerce company that I won't name because I'm not, I don't remember whether I'm allowed to name it. Um, and with about a 20% uh, response rate to a survey that was that uh, was taken or initiated by you clicking on the order confirmation button. So we can, you know, in general, surveys, uh, uh, survey research, NPS research based on transactions isn't useful. Uh, it works best at the level of an overall brand or an overall product or service. E-commerce for that would probably be an exception because if you order from Amazon or whoever, um, you know, two-thirds of the experience you've got is trying to discover the product, evaluate it, and you know, place the order. And the part after you've received it and maybe the returns process, if you need to return something, is the other third. So you can get valid and good predictive data. And in that e-commerce company, NPS was highly predictive uh, of future purchases, the, the amounts, and so on. And... But let's suppose that the survey shows that people who've been delivered more than two days later than expected are likely to be detractors. So if you're only taking actions to try and recover those customers who you've found out are detractors because they told you in the survey, that seems really defective as a methodology because in your operational data, you already know 100% of the customers that you've delivered more than two days late. Right? So why is it that almost no, I'm going to take the risk of saying no company does this. Meaning take your most significant contributors to people being detractors and proactively close the loop with them. Uh, there's, oh my God, we know we're about to, even perhaps before they've been delivered, we know that we're about to get deliver this person more than two days late. So why wait those two days? Why not send them an email or whatever and say, you know, we're terribly sorry. And, uh, and then yeah. you're doing the closed loop and the tractor recovery before it even happens. And by definition, you can do that from operational data and you can't do it from survey data because by definition, it's after the fact, right? Uh, exactly. And, and if you're able to deal with these things proactively, then you know, why would you not do it? Um, yeah, I think that's what you were getting at with, uh, with this, right? And it's, it's how do you... The big defect is that it, it drives a behavior of not taking action with the people who haven't responded to surveys. And, and I think you're mention, mentioning one one of the, the weaknesses. If we can go to the next two that, that you mentioned. One, one comment from my side, exactly what you are saying. It's not enough to close the loop with the detractors because if I know that 
you are a detector, detractor because something happened, I should solve, proactively solve this issue for all other customers so that I can avoid having additional detractors that are <laughs> deteriorating my score. Absolutely. And uh, that, of course, is something that we'll get into in a moment when we talk about futures, because uh, there was no technology to do this 10 years ago, and there is now. And to help to, to do that without a lot of effort. We came to the end of the first half of this discussion. If you want to get additional value, understanding the other weaknesses and also the future about NPS, please stay tuned for the next episode together with Maurice. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the word of mouth. Subscribe it, share it. Until the next episode, please don't forget... We are not in a B2B or B2C business, we are in a human-to-human -human environment. Thank you!